chapter 14 in the book of Romans, which is where we are in our study, parallels what's in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. There are very parallel treatments of this subject of Christian liberty. In this situation in Corinth, uh, the Corinthian church, the people in Corinth had come to know Christ in terms of the church, and they are looking at their past life, where they would go into the idol temples. Most of the temples in Corinth are dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of carnal love. And there was a lot going on in those temples. But among other things, you would sacrifice animals to the gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world. Some of that sacrifice would be burned up. Some of that sacrifice would be given to the priests to eat. Again, these are pagan. This is nothing to do with, with Jewish, Israel tradition or anything like that. And the rest would be eaten in the temple itself. You would be sharing a meal with the gods. These were the great social gathering places of, of uh, the ancient world. Uh, they would be comparable to a restaurant today. They really would be. So you would go to these temples, these idol temples, as not only a place to offer sacrifices, but a place of social engagement. And so they asked Paul this question. Paul, now that we've come to know Christ and we know there's nothing but idols, has nothing to do with what we believe now, can I still take my wife there to have a nice meal with her? And Paul's answer was yes. In another context, some of that meat was not only put in terms of eating in the idol temple, but also sold in the marketplace as a source of revenue for the temples. Paul asked this question. Paul, they asked him this. Paul, can, can, can we go by that I have a barbecue with our friends? Or if a friend of mine invites me to his house and I know that's a barbecue using idol meat, can I go there? Paul's, question, Paul's answer to the question is, yes, you can. That's your freedom in Christ. You know tr the truth that those idols are nothing but pieces of wood, pieces of stone. And you know that everything that God gives is a good gift for you to enjoy. God declared everything good. And you have the liberty and the freedom to do these things because of the authority of Jesus Christ over all things. And you understand that. But your liberty is not absolute. As you exercise this liberty, you must think of the impact this is going to have on your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are weak. And in particular, the 8, 9, 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, he talks of the weak conscience versus the strong conscience. Paul's going to use that same language here. In, in Romans 14, it's a little bit different because in Rome, and remember Rome is a much different city in one sense of Corinth, but in Rome you had a very significant Jewish population. Some estimate it was high as 100,000. And so many of those Jews who would, would, would respond to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah would accept it, and then you have all these Gentiles, Greco-Roman people who come to faith in Christ. So in the five house churches of Rome, you have Jews and Gentiles living together. I don't mean living together in the same house. I mean living and sharing together, including worshiping together. And so what was happening is you have different groups of people. You have the Jewish people who come to know Christ. They're still, still kind of following and adhering to the kosher food laws because that was a part of their tradition. Then you have another group of Jewish people who are saying, well, those kosher laws are no longer relevant to us because I'm free in Christ. And then you have the Gentiles, the Greco-Roman people, who come to faith in Christ. And they're, they're saying that I can eat anything. And you people should be following what I think in terms of my freedom. There are no boundaries to what I can eat and drink because I'm free in Christ. Everything is a good gift from a good God. In addition to that, you have people who are trying to stay above all this, and their diet is just vegetables. They're first-century vegans. I don't know if you know what that means, but... Okay, so you have all these different groups that are responding to what they eat. And that's an issue of liberty. 
So what Paul is going to do here, he does the same thing in 8, 9, 10 of Corinthians. What he does here in Romans, he, he helps us think through some principles that are as relevant in 21st century as they were in the 1st century, principles in terms of how I exercise my Christian liberty. Because the issue of food is not a salvation issue, right? I mean, the issue of food is not how you get into heaven, or it's not what's going to keep you out of heaven. The issue of food is a non-moral issue. That's why I put it that way. It's a non-moral issue. It's not a moral, ethical issue in terms of your choosing to either engage and eat some of these things or not engage and eat. And so when you are in a church, and this was the case in the first century, we have all these different groups of people who are responding to the kosher laws, the freedom in Christ, and you, you, you harden your positions, it becomes a salvation issue. It becomes an issue that divides people. It becomes an issue where people within the five house churches of Rome are hurling accusations at one another. And they're, they're really disagreeing. And they're making it a major issue. And Paul's saying, it isn't a major issue. So how do I deal as a Christian in the 21st century with these kinds of issues? I mean, for the most part, Christians today, food's not an issue that divides us. I mean, for the most part. I've run in that, and every now and then over the years, I've run into a Christian who's a vegetarian and said, we know Christians really shouldn't be eating meat. And I, and I always say, okay, where's that in the Bible? But that was a conviction they had. Because what happens with these issues, they become deep-seated convictions. The other danger of this is that your convictions in these non-moral issues can become legalistic issues. Issues of legalism. I grew up a little bit before the earth's crust was hardening when I met Neil, I grew up in a family and in a church in southeastern Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, which was extremely strict, a, you know, a term you would use today, very fundamentalist. And the tests of fellowship in that church were going to movies, having playing cards in your house, if you were in the youth group, having an Elvis record at home. They were the issues. And our, I remember, I can remember this, I don't, it would have been in the 1950s, so I don't, late 1950s when Elvis had just coming on the scene. And I remember the youth group leader in my church saying, if you have any Elvis records at home, go home and smash them to the glory of God. I don't know how you would look at something like that, but that here I am, you know, thinking, I didn't have any Elvis records, but I knew some of my friends did. So it became a test of fellowship. I shouldn't associate with people who play Elvis records. And it was just these kinds of things. And, you know, Christians don't go to movies in the 1950s and early 60s. The first movie my mother saw was The Sound of Music. She loved that. She loved the music of that. But this was a church that didn't approve of going to movies. So my mom and dad drove from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and went to the movie there. Why? Because she, did, she was terrified that she was going to see somebody from the church. And she saw Tenem. Pardon me? She saw Tenem. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but I mean, and really, the whole way through, our mom didn't really enjoy the movie. So today, you know, what Christian, if you have that conviction, you just wait till it comes out in DVD, then you get it. Or you get it on, you know, all the different things we can access on, on our computers. But I'm, I'm using some silly examples, but, man, these are the kinds of things that are still relevant today. And it's hard for us to not take an absolute position when it comes to our conviction. Obviously, what I believe should be the standard. So what I then could do, if I'm just pretending this, but I reach a conviction, I universalize that conviction for every Christian. And that becomes a test of fellowship. That becomes a test of sanctification. That becomes a test that divides Christians. Paul has, he, he will have none of this. 
So what he does for us, and this is, this is how I'm going to try to approach this, and we'll never get it all done today, but try to approach this in this holistic way. And what he's saying, try to make it applicational for us in the 21st century, if we can do that. The first principle he lays down for us in verses 1 through 12 is the principle of mutual tolerance. Now, remember, we are talking about the non-moral issues of life. We are not talking about issues of salvation. We're not talking about issues to which the Bible has laid down a clear ethical standard. We're talking about the areas that do not have anything to do with salvation, do not have anything to do with the process of sanctification. These are non-moral errors in and of themselves. In this situation, chapter 14, it's food. In our culture today, in the 21st century, for the most, I don't, I am not aware of that being a major divisive issue among Christians. Maybe some areas it is, but I'm not aware of it. So how does he address this matter of the principle of mutual tolerance? And so now he's going to use some language here when he talks about food and things. I've tried to explain what the situation is, so hopefully it will make sense to you. Beginning verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. And he's going to illustrate that in verse 2. Okay, now we have to walk that back. When he says weak in faith, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, he uses the phrase, a person of a weak conscience. He doesn't use that phrase here. He says weak in faith. What, what, does, he, what does he mean by that? The context would seem to be a fairly new believer. It might be a Jewish person who's come to faith in Christ in the first century. It might be a Greco-Roman person who's come out of paganism. And they have all this baggage and all their understanding of their past life. They're coming to faith. They're just beginning to learn, beginning to understand what it means to be a Christian and the holistic understanding of everything that's involved in the Christian's faith. So this person is weak. He's not, this isn't a condemnatory statement. This is a judgmental statement. It's just a fact. They are weak in faith. They're new believers. They're just beginning their journey with Christ. And they're, they're looking at their choices in now the freedom they have in Christ as really significant choices that are going to impact everything. And so this is probably the group that he's going to be talking about a little earlier, a little later, excuse me, that they're choosing to eat vegetables, but they're looking down on everybody else that doesn't eat vegetables. He's going to talk about that, so that's probably him he's talking about. Welcome him. The Greek word there in welcome is accept him. Just because he has an opinion about this non-moral issue of food that's different than yours, don't judge him, don't condemn him, don't look down on him because you are so much more developed in your faith, you are so much developed in understanding the breadth of your Christian freedom in Christ in these non-moral issues. Don't look down on him. Instead, accept him. You can actually paraphrase that, embrace him. But not to quarrel over opinions. So in welcoming him, you're also agreeing this isn't going to be an issue we're going to disagree about. More importantly, and it's better to say it this way, this is an issue we're not going to fight about. So he uses the word quarrel. We have different opinions here. So we're not going to make this an issue that we're going to fight over in our church. Now he illustrates. One person believes he may eat anything. Christian liberty. Broad understanding of liberty. The kosher laws have been set aside by the finished work of Jesus Christ. They're no longer applicable to the person who walks with God. You understand that. And you understand, Paul talks about this in 1 uh, Timothy 
uh, five, I believe it is. He quotes from the old, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Enjoy the good things of God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon keeps saying over and over again, God gives you the gift to enjoy the bounty of what he shares with you. Your food, your drink, your home. These are the things he illustrates. So Paul's saying the same thing here. Here's the person who understands the breadth of freedom, the joy of freedom in Christ, and the responsibility to act wisely in the exercise of my freedom. But that's the one person. But the weak person, again, that corresponds with the person who's weak in faith. The weak person, the language Paul uses in Corinthians is the person with a weak conscience. Eats only vegetables. So, the dichotomy in the church in Rome, the five house churches in Rome, in about 57 AD or so when he writes this, this is a dividing point. People are fighting over this. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. The one who eats has the broad understanding of freedom in Christ. And one of the things that was really a delicacy in first century Rome was pork. The delicacy of pork. Now, you do know that a Jew is not supposed to eat pork, right? <coughs> they don't have pigs in their backyard. <coughs> so there, there is a fair amount of evidence that the people who are eating vegetables are some of these people who are Jewish people who come to faith in Christ, understand the kosher laws, but they're not willing to sit down with these Greco-Roman Christians who come to faith in Christ and enjoying the delicacy of pig, of ham, of pork chops, or whatever you want to call it, or whatever it looked like. They won't do that. So not that one who eats the lovely, delicious delicacy of pork one who abstains, who's eating vegetable, and not the one who abstains, pass judgment on the one who eats. I don't have any trouble understanding what he's saying there. Because you can just imagine the Greco-Roman Christians, oh, I have freedom in Christ to enjoy the delicacy, and you, you eat only vegetables. What kind of a Christian are you? You're not enjoying the bounty of the Lord. Wake up to your Christian freedom. And until you do, I really don't have a lot of much, much to do with you. And so the church is wrong. We're dividing over these issues because the one is saying, I am so much further along the spiritual journey than you are. And until you catch up with me, I don't want much to do with you. Broccoli isn't the same as pork. And you're not going to force me to eat broccoli. And so you have the, the people who are eating broccoli passing judgment on the people who are enjoying the sumptuous delicacies of pork. The end of verse 3. Let the one who passes abstains pass judgment on who eat because God has welcomed him. God loves both. God accepts both. Food is not a salvation issue. And don't make it a salvation issue. Because from God's vantage point, this has nothing to do with him. It's the same word of welcome in verse 1. the same word here, the Greek word. God's accept. God embraces. Food's not an issue to God. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to, take, to make him stand. The spiritual condition of the weak, I just kind of use the language Paul is using. The spiritual condition of the weak or the strong has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not the issue in these verses. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about food. 
I'm going to go out on a limb here. It'll probably make some of you uncomfortable. But I remember many years ago, I don't know what to mean, 25 years ago, I grew up in a home, and Peggy and I made that choice, that we would just abstain from alcoholic beverages, including wine and things like that. That was just our choice. So Peggy and I went to dinner at a, a, with a, a, a very important and very uh, uh, good friend of ours in this community, and another pastor and his wife. The pastor and his wife, the pastor was a very good friend, a very close friend of mine. And the businessman was a very close friend of mine. So six of us went to dinner. Went to a dinner, a lovely restaurant down the old market, and um, it was really interesting. The business friend and his wife ordered wine, and the pastor friend of mine and his wife ordered wine. And Peggy, I was just like, you know, it was like, for some reason, that really grabbed me. I thought, oh, my goodness, he drinks wine. My friend, I'm talking about the business guy, I'm talking about my pastor friend. He and his wife, he's the pastor of a very well known evangelical church here in town. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Peggy and I, if we choose not to drink wine, we're going to be standing, we're going to be kind of outliers in this lovely dinner together. But that was our conviction. That was the conviction we had, and we just chose not to drink wine. But immediately, if my father were there, now my dad went for for a number of years, but if my father were there, he would have made that a test of fellowship. He may have got up and left the restaurant. I'm serious. I mean that. You know, you would say, but this is the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. Does a Christian have the freedom to enjoy a glass of wine with a steak? I can't believe you're driving a gas-powered car. I mean, I think it's awful you drive a gas-powered car. <laughs> okay, I mean, you're using... But, I mean, but, but that's what we're doing today. We are making... Okay, we're making these kinds of... Decision-making these areas of liberty. My conviction is you should not drink alcoholic beverages. I think abstinence is the only way to go. But listen, there are a lot of Christians who don't agree with that. But there's a lot of people who still do. Yeah, I, well, I, I, you know, I'm just saying, that's an issue. Your convictions, the, the danger we have, sorry, I'm talking about it, the danger we have is to universalize that conviction for every Christian. The conviction I have should be your conviction. Now, you don't have my conviction. Are you saved? Are you really saved? I'm a little concerned about your spiritual condition. But for people who move around the country, Going to a lot of different or even you've seen this. We've seen so many different arguments, and you get outside of the United States, you're going to really see a tremendous variety of how people look at questions like this. And I, I don't want to get into a discussion about these things. I'm teaching these are illustrative. I don't want to get into that discussion. But what was an issue back then, which is not an issue today is substituted by a lot of other issues that divide Christians that have nothing to do with their salvation. So how do you and I relate to, react to Christians who disagree with your convictions? That's what Paul. And what is Paul doing? He's driving us back. How does God look at them? Food issues don't have anything to do with salvation. Paul saying, God welcomes both in this choice. And he will take care of their spiritual condition and has nothing to do with food choice. Well, John, some time ago, you mentioned, uh, I don't know how many years ago, so that you were reluctant walk into a casino over the Council Bluffs and have a meal. And I know the casinos in Las Vegas, they are, I've been in probably most of them there, and they serve delicious meals. That's one of the attractions that they use. But you were reluctant because you thought maybe that if someone saw you, you might act as a stumbling block for others. That is something that Paul addresses in the, in the Corinthians material. He will allude to that. Here's not a major point. Jim? But in terms of... Hey Jim? Yes. Uh, can you repeat what um, 
Fred said we, we couldn't hear him. We couldn't hear what he said. In, in essence, um, Glenn, the, the question Fred is really alluding to some, I can't imagine he even remember what I said many years ago. <laughs> we did. But it deals with something that was in our study of 1 Corinthians. But it was something I chose to do a number of years ago about going, taking Peggy over to one of the, uh, one of the, the casinos over in, in Council Bluffs. Uh, where they have lovely meals, pretty cheap, and, and as I understand it. And I just said, I choose not to do that. My fear was that someone would see Peggy and I going into the casino, misunderstand what we were doing, and cause them to engage in some additional sin, perhaps. Even getting in, they may have come out of a life of gambling, been addicted to gambling, and they think if Ekman can do it, I can do it, and they're lured back into their past life. That's what Paul talks about in the Corinthian letters. He's not specifically talking about it here, but when we get to verse 13 in following, he's going to talk about don't cause the weaker brother to stumble. And that's, that's the principle I was following. But to choose to do that is not a sin. Paul says, is it wise to do that in terms of the effect it might have on a brother who's weak or a sister who's weak? And I think that's, but we're, we're going to get to that. That's one of the other principles he's going to lay down for us. Right now, what Paul is dealing with is how do you look at, more specifically, how does God look at these different groups that disagree over food? Paul's just established it. God welcomes them both. Food doesn't have anything to do with their spiritual condition. Secondly, in, in terms of this principle of a call to mutual tolerance, is both the weak and the strong both belong to Jesus. Food does not affect the relationship with Christ. The one who, I'm in verse 6 now. I sh I'm sorry, I skipped 5 and I shouldn't have done that. Paul brings up another issue in addition to food. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. All right, what is he talking about here? Again, probably... The Jewish Christian, Jews who have come to faith in Christ, esteems one day is better than another. What day would that be? Shabbat, the Sabbath. And if you ever, I, I have a lot of Christian, a lot of friends who are, who are Jewish Christians who have come out of, of Judaism. And that is the most difficult thing for them to, get, to, to let loose and, and, and get behind them. I shouldn't say get behind them because that isn't the way to put it. Where they see that as not significant to their walk with God but Shabbat, Sabbath, is so important to the Jewish because it's a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And so Paul says, some esteem that, others see all days, days alike. There is no special Shabbat. There's the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Well, anyway, and Paul's just saying, each one should be convinced of his own mind. You have those convictions? Fine. You want to live with those convictions? Fine. But it's not a test of salvation. This doesn't keep you in or out of heaven. If you have those convictions, fine. Live with those convictions. He will use another time. He doesn't use that here. He will keep using the term conscience. If your conscience is seared with this, don't sin against conscience. Don't go against conscience. Follow it. But those of you who don't see it that way, don't sit in judgment of those. It's tolerating differing perspectives in the areas of Christian liberty. Are we mature enough to do that? That's the question. So in verse 6, he, he now goes to another dimension of why be tolerant of one another in these non-moral areas of life. The one who observes the day, presumably the Sabbath, observe it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, back to the food issue, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While there abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. See the parallel? Exactly the same language. Honor, thanks. Honors the Lord. This is what I believe the Lord wants me to do. This is how I believe the Lord wants me to live. It's my conviction. 
And when I sit down to eat a plate of vegetables, I thank the Lord for the vegetable. And the person who enjoys the delicacies of, of, of the pork is saying, how can you possibly give thanks to the Lord for that? You thank the Lord for broccoli? Yes, you and I'm, I'm exaggerating this. But Paul says, don't you dare. Don't you dare look down on that person. Out of their convictions, they honor the Lord and they give thanks to the Lord. Just like the person who eats pork and enjoys that, they honor the Lord and they give thanks to the Lord. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. We're not autonomous individualists. For if we live, we live to the Lord. We die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And then it's fantastic verse. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is centered on the resurrection. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ centered on the resurrection has nothing to do with food laws. It has nothing to do with food issues. Or even how you look at certain days this side of the cross. And the third point that he wants to make about this principle of mutual tolerance is both are accountable to the Lord. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? Again, in the context of the food, dietary, Sabbath, that kind of stuff, what we've just been talking about. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now I want to make sure this is clear to all of you. When Paul talks about the judgment, he is not talking about the great white throne judgment here. You know what I mean by that? Okay, some of you had that deer in the headlight look. You know, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. The great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the book of Revelation, is about God's judgment on the people who, human beings who have rejected his grace. Old Testament, New Testament, every human being has rejected his grace. If you put your faith in Christ, you're not going to be there. He's talking about 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Christians stand at the famous seat, that's the term he uses there, the famous seat of Jesus to give an account of how we lived our lives since we trusted Christ. Has nothing to do with has nothing to do with where we're going to spend eternity. It gets into that issue that is kind of hard for us, but the issue of rewards and so on. But all he's saying is we all of us are Christians, we have to stand before Jesus. Listen, it's a simple point. I'm not accountable to Fred or Ed, or Bill, or this friend, or even Joe. Oh, wow. What? I'm accountable only to Jesus. Because, what, what does he say there? Whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord. And his lordship means, this is, this is one of the major themes in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, the mature believer sees the eternal significance of everything they do. That's a very important proposition from that book. And that's what Paul's pleading for. Here. I'm sorry? Well, it was a, it's a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. The mature believer is the one who sees the eternal significance of everything they do. That's what Paul, this is what Solomon said. That's the fantastic message. Well, I should put it this way. That's one of the fantastic messages coming out of Ecclesiastes. You're never going to figure everything out. You're never going to get every single question you fire at God answered. But trust in God's sovereignty, believe in his providence, 
and also his ability and capacity to give you the joy of life because he wants you to enjoy everything that's a part of life and for you to see the significance of everything you do to him and Solomon has a lot to say about work he has a lot to say about entertainment he has a lot to say about reading he has a lot because everything is under the lordship of Christ it's the greatest challenge to Christians compartmentalizing their life there is in the scriptures because sometimes people say, well, what I do on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. is far more important than what I do at 7 a.m. on Monday morning. Not from God's eyes. You may compartmentalize your life like that, but God doesn't. What you do on Monday morning at 7 is just as important as what you do in church at worship. They're equally important to God. Different purposes, different functions, but equally important to God. And your worship of him on Sunday leads to your worshipful work, Colossians 3, 22 and following, worshipful work where your boss is Jesus. You're really working for him. I mean, when you start to see everything like that, this is what this is what Paul's claiming. When you start to see everything like that, I'm not accountable to you. And you have no right to judge me in these non-moral areas of life. If we see things different, have different conviction, we should still be getting along. Why? Because God accepts both of us. Our spiritual condition has nothing to do with these non-moral issues over which we disagree. We both belong to Jesus Christ with our faith in him, and we both are accountable to Jesus Christ for how we live our lives. So passing judgment on one another about these non-moral issues is fruitless, it's divisive, and it's actually not real pleasing to the Lord. So knock it off. That's, that's not in the Bible, but that's what Paul, in effect, is saying. So knock it off. You're fighting over things that don't have any eternal significance to them. And so I mean, this is what is so powerful. I mean, it really is powerful for us to, to, to understand, and it's really, really important, we're talking about these non-moral issues of life. We're not talking about sin. I tell you what we're talking about. And so when you when you get that, then you start. Yeah, you know, I I need to really think about this because I I have not necessarily lived like this. That was the struggle in in the church where I grew up. Honestly, you had people fighting over things that had absolutely nothing to do with their salvation, and it was a horrible witness. It really was. All right, Jim. Uh, I've got a gentleman uh, this week. He's an older gentleman, but he's uh, he accepted Christ some some time ago. But I don't think that he has grown a great deal because I don't think he's understood this book enough, or has hasn't been nourished enough by other Christians to to grow in the Lord much. And I just think that it kind of surprised me a little bit um, because as he shared his life with me, uh, that just because a person is older doesn't mean he has grown mature uh, in the Lord. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I am, but I just noticed that. Certain things... Chronological age has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. So when we meet someone, we just can't assume because they're so yeah. engaged that they have toured all the long Yeah. And that is really true. That's why uh, my conviction has always been it is so important, and that's what I assume is part of a group like this, it's so important to be with other and very specific here, in this case with other Christian men, to to get to know other Christian men and see all of the different ways in which Christian men are processing biblical truth, applying biblical truth, coming under the conviction in your own life of things I need to deal with. If you're totally alone and you're totally isolated, that that is a very dangerous thing spiritually. So how, how you help facilitate and foster 
that kind of spiritual growth that may match the chronological growth. But I, I, Fred, I don't know this man. I don't need to know who it is. I don't particularly want to know who it is. But all I'm saying is I would venture to say probably that man has not surrounded himself very much with other Christian men. And is a part of that process of mutual encouraging, supporting, and challenging one another. And been in, in, in significantly, what I think are significantly deep Bible studies. You, you meant some of you, I don't do shallow, superficial stuff because I don't think that God's word isn't that. God's word is constantly challenging us. And we have to try to understand what God is saying to us so that his word through his spirit can then begin to transform us. And I would venture to say that man has probably not been in those situations throughout much of his life. Okay. Now, we only have 15 minutes, but I do want to, I don't want to just leave this first principle. I want to get to the second principle. It starts in verse 13. Now, what Paul does, he emphasizes the importance of seeing Christian liberty the way you should see it. In these non-moral issues, the principle of mutual tolerance, God accepts both sides in these different arguments and non-moral issues. Both belong to Jesus. Both are accountable to Jesus. But your exercise of your Christian liberty is not an absolute. You do not pound the proverbial table and demand your rights. The mature Christian is willing to give up his rights in certain circumstances for the sake of others. So the strong, let's just use adjectives we sort of used here, the strong, mature believer must be willing in their certain circumstances and certain contexts to surrender those rights for the sake of the weaker brother, sister in Christ. Well, how do I do that? Do I become a milk toast for Jesus? Do I become a doormat for Jesus? So that's what Paul tries to get at in uh, lay out for us in verses 13 through 23. I don't know if we're going to get through all this today. Is this you're going to do the stumbling block. Pardon me? You're going to do the stumbling Exactly. Can I ask you a question? Because it's always how far do you care being somebody? I'll give you a specific example. I go to dinner with you. I know you don't drink, so I'm not going to drink. Now, the problem is next week I'm going to the same restaurant with someone who does drink, and I don't mind having a beer. How much do I worry about you showing up and sitting next to me now? Well, if for me, when you and I are going out to dinner, have your beer. I don't care. You know, but it, some but, people, yeah, no, well, see, that's... to be a stomach block. How far do I care this not being a stomach block? You know, Bill, I wish I could give you four bullet points to give you clarity <laughs> on that. I do, too. It's, I, I think it, it's, it... Bill, I think it's what you're comfortable with yeah. in terms of, of your conscience and your convictions and all of that, what your level of comfort is with that. Um, but I mean, worried about somebody who may or may not yeah. be here. He's carrying an awful far. Yeah, in places where that. Yeah, of course. Big concern. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I, it's just there's no easy answer to that. Uh, you you find yourself in in little situations like that throughout life in some of these non-moral areas. And your example is a good example. And so, um, what you are comfortable with. If that person isn't in the restaurant, but you have hanging over you the sort of Damocles, what if they walk <laughs> into the restaurant? To me, my sense would be enjoy that meal with your friend, and if you're going to have a glass of beer with your steak or your hamburger or whatever you're eating, enjoy it. If that person happens to come in, they have to deal with that. But if they're sitting right next, if they're, you're at a table with your friend and they're right over here and they're having the same, they're having a meal too, and they see you, hi, how you doing? They watch. Mm. But it, it, part of it too is, is that really a weaker brother? I mean, is this 
you know, and you have to always think of what weak means here, but is that a weaker brother? Or is that weaker brother going to be manipulative and controlling in my life where he's going to, he or she's going to insist that I develop their convictions and are going to make me feel guilty for, I mean, you see that manipulative, this, and this is very much a part of the human condition. And so it's like, okay. And this is just, these, these kind of, I just want Jesus to come back. I don't really want to <laughs> deal with these things, but that's just the way you have to just wrestling through this. So Paul is taking kind of a 100,000-foot view, and he's laying down some principles for us. That doesn't mean that all carrying out all these principles is necessarily easy. There's always stress points. So can... I didn't mean to... Hurt. No, that's all right. No, it's okay. Peggy always says, what if you don't finish? Nobody's keeping score. You're not in a semester. You don't have term limits. So she's right. So anyway. Let's get started anyway. Wonderful, wonderful passage in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's everything he's been saying. So, okay, got it. Because the call to mutual tolerance and all the reasons we looked at. But rather... Now, here's the but. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block, the Greek word is scandalon, a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So now he's shifting to the second principle. Do you understand, it's a metaphor, but do you understand the metaphor of stumbling block? In Greek, it's scandalon. Do something scandalous. That's going to cause your brother, who sees you do this, it's going to cause that person to stumble in their faith. So loving one another means... With my brother or sister in Christ who doesn't see this issue the way I see it, and they see me engage in this, it's going to cause them to be scandalized and stumble. He also uses a second metaphor, a hindrance. You could tra translate that word, an obstacle in their walk with Christ in the way. And so, okay, all right, Paul, so you are saying to me that my liberty in Christ is not an absolute. I don't pound the table at all times. And no matter what you say or what you do or what you feel, you don't matter to me. I'm going to go forth with my exercise of my freedom. Paul says, don't pass judgment on one another. First set of verses in this chapter, first 12 verses. But... In your exercise of liberty, don't be a stumbling block or an obstacle to your brother or sister's walk with Jesus. Now, in my view, not every expositor sees it this way, but in my view, verse 14 is a parenthesis. It's a mini bunny trail. It's like, Paul, I, I want to lay something on the table here. Make sure you all get it. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. This is the same message that Peter received in Acts 10. When he saw the sheep come out of heaven, all the clean and unclean animals together, and God says, eat. He's like, can't eat that stuff's unclean. And, and, and God says, a new order has dawned. The new covenant has dawned. But these things are irrelevant. That's what Paul's saying. This is an amazing thing for a Jew to say. It's an amazing thing for a Pharisee to say. I am convinced 
in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. No Jew before the cross would say that. Any Jew before the cross would say, I'll show you all the list of things that are unclean. He'd go to Leviticus, and it's a long list. But in the Lord, because this is what the new covenant is. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. Because the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ, therefore the new covenant is the lines. And Paul says, in the new covenant, I'm convinced nothing in itself... In, in in terms of its essence, nothing is unclean. This isn't unclean. As a matter of fact, this is righteous. This has great persuasive power when it comes to God. I'm being silly, but nothing is I mean, it's like any anything that's physical and material is not in, in and of itself innately unclean. You know what I mean by that? That's innate because God creates everything that's good. Then immediately something material can be used for an egregious source of evil. A pistol, a hammer, a club, a movie, a book. Nothing is intrinsically evil. It can become an issue. So all Paul is saying is, and, and you know, he's primarily speaking here as a Jew. That nothing in and of itself is unclean. But if someone has a conviction that it's unclean, now in the context of what you know, the Jewish person who's come out of, of, of Judaism has accepted Christ and they're really struggling with all these this new freedom and the kosher laws and stuff. But you could also, let's do it this way, the person the person who thinks an alcoholic beverage is unclean. It's unclean for them. If that's a conviction, you can't sit in judgment on that conviction. As a, Paul said, as a mature Jew who's come to faith in Christ and understands that kosher laws were fulfilled in Christ have been replaced by the new covenant, nothing's just like Peter said in Acts 10. But not everybody agrees with that. Verse 15. I want to explain this, Paul's saying. Is that for there is a garb of explanation, explaining what he just said. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. What you eat, by what you eat. If you choose to demand what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. How Paul has brought in the gospel. Not by eating the meat, but eating the meat, and this is the context, eating the meat, in front of a brother who has a conviction that I shouldn't eat this. He's grieved by that. And in my Bible, I took the word grieved and circled it and took the word stumbling block in verse 13 and circled it. This is becoming a stumbling block. This, by you demanding your Christian rights, and Christian liberty in terms of eating whatever you want to eat could have a very significant effect on your brother and sister who doesn't see it that way. You could spiritually harm someone for whom Christ Jesus died. And if you are demanding your rights, where you don't care the effect it has on other believers, you're no longer walking in love. Selfishness has replaced love. And selfishness is totally the opposite of agape. So we exercise our freedom and mutual tolerance where we see each other the way God said, all the stuff we saw in the first 12 verses, but there's another side to this question. 
And this is the side that Bill was talking about in his illustration a moment ago, and it, it creates real stress and tension for us. I out of my corner of my eye, I saw a hand up somewhere. Rob? How, how insidious this is, is we try to honor God. And we have to make a decision about how our actions impact others. Uh, so we, in order to know that, I think we have to be communicative enough to get to know the other person. Have any idea how our actions are going to impact it. I, I see it as quite a challenge. <laughs> That's an understatement in one way. But, but it is. It is a challenge. And that's why if all you had were the first 12 verses, you wouldn't have the other side of this coin, so to speak, where you have the tension and difficulty of walking in love. Because walking in love means, by definition, I'm always thinking of the betterment of the other person, not my rights. It's not about me. It's about us. And I want it to be about me. I'm most comfortable when it's about me. But it's not about me. It's about us. The body of Christ is us. And <clears throat> until we get to heaven, which is that's the blessed thought, but until we get to heaven, we're going to be dealing with people. People are very frustrated. People are very difficult. My mentor, when I was ordained way back, right, before the earth's crust was hardening when I met Neil. But when I was ordained, my mentor said to me, Jim, you're going to find out ministry will be great if we're not for people. <laughs> but that's what ministry is. I mean, you're just kind of, I mean, in my church and all well, my life, I've dealt with this stuff since I came to Christ. Is you just are, it's constantly dealing with all the tensions of people, most of, most of which are dealing with things that aren't that significant, but they're extremely important to them. As well as just the debilitating and, and quite awful things that come with sin. So, and I'm, I'm going to have to quit here in a minute. But, and I, I'm sorry I have to do this right in the middle of, of all of this. But Paul is trying to get us in the 21st century as it was for the first century Roman churches. Think about this the way Jesus wants us to think about it. And what he's laying down is the marker of love. It's not the self-centered, self-centered insistence on your rights. It's always sensitive to, through love, of the spiritual condition of your brother and sister in Christ. And if you pound the table with your rights, you're no longer walking in love. <clears throat> let me, I'm going to come back to this next week, but let me end with this. I love verse 17. It's the big macro 100,000 foot issue. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, you probably recognize those three virtues are produced by the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom living. Kingdom living is not about eating and drinking. It's about the virtues that the Holy Spirit produces. Because that little preposition in, you could translate that legitimately by. That is that preposition is sometimes translated by. It's not it's something it's translated in, with, or by. It can be translated any one of those three ways. So the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating, drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy by the Holy Spirit. Or in the Holy Spirit. And so it reminds us what's eternally significant about this stuff. Not eating and drinking, really. It's the virtues that the Spirit's producing in our lives. That's what's really important. I'm sorry, guys. I have got to quit because I've got to get to another, uh, another class on the other side of the city. So we're just leaving in a minute. But this gives you a reason to come back next week, I hope. So this is powerful stuff. I, I hope you agree.
Neil, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming. Father, we thank you for our, our time around the Word of God, especially these very difficult but helpful parameters and principles that the Apostle Paul is laying down for us. Uh, this is hard to process this. It's hard to think about this. But it's necessary for us to do this because we have enormous, tremendous, valuable freedom in Jesus. We are not to pursue a legalistic set of strictures where we universalize our convictions for everybody else in these non-moral areas. That's the wrong way to go about this. So we have to see people with whom we disagree on these non-moral issues. Same way you see them, Jesus died for them. We're all accountable to Jesus and how we live our lives. We also must be willing at certain times and certain contexts to surrender our rights because of our love for one another. Where we only just started that, I'm not anywhere near finishing it. But the kingdom, kingdom values are not about eating and drinking. They're much, much higher virtues. That's what the Apostle Paul is beginning to help us think about. Be with these men. I trust them to you. Thank you for their willingness to study in depth the Word of God. May your spirit use it, who inspired it, use it to transform us. Lord, we pray for Chuck tomorrow and the family as, as they say, goodbye to Ellen, so to speak. We certainly trust the service to you and help him and the rest of the family, including Neil. Help them in these days and weeks ahead to experience your comfort. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1. To experience your grace, may they be sustained by these. We trust them to you. We thank you, too, for the hope that Jesus being brings to our lives, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of spending eternity together. All of those things motivate us and keep us going. We trust that to you as well. So, Lord, give us a good rest of the day. We trust in Christ's name. Amen.